Okay, welcome to this week's CoinGeek Conversation. And we have a very special guest today, Dr. Craig Wright, the chief scientist of N-Chain and the originator, along with others, he says, of the work of Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin. Craig, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Now, I just want to take a little historical step back before we get into the detail here. I I read an interesting piece in the New York Times, published in 2014, where Mark Andreessen, the co-founder of Netscape, said that there was a sort of pattern in tech revolutions. In PCs in 1975, the internet in 1993, and Bitcoin in 2014, they all were movements that started with a sort of anti-establishment flavor, beloved of techies, and they were eventually commercialized to become mainstream and seem so obvious that people can't now imagine life without them. I mean, do you agree with that? And how far away are we from Bitcoin becoming that obvious, do you think? I think it'll take um, time still to be that obvious, but I don't agree with what he's saying. He's looking at it from a very sort of uh, jaded Um, Silicon Valley type of view and he thinks everything must be like Silicon Valley because it's code it must be like every other bit of code unfortunately for him Bitcoin's nothing like that Bitcoin was never designed to be anything other than a a mutable evidence system to be money that can't change to be a protocol fairly much it's about everything that isn't Silicon Valley right but it, it does involve computer code Yes, but then so do switching units on, uh, on phones, and they go back a long time. Um, so it won't take as long as many other revolutions. If you look at the average time from the invention of something to when it actually takes off, through most history, it's been around 50 years. So that's accelerated here. Yes, the internet, certainly 25, 30 years. Mm, exactly. Um, perhaps you could clear this up for me, because I'm, I'm puzzled by this. Uh, you've written that Bitcoin is an electronic cash system, it's not a crypto system, and it's not a currency in any form. So you are telling us that Bitcoin is not a cryptocurrency. That's correct. And and how does that... Can you help us understand that? So it uses the same sort of algorithms, but um, that doesn't mean that it is. Now, if you look at something like Shulmin eCash or Brands eCash, then that was a cryptocurrency. It actually uses blinding and other such things to cryptographically hide something. Cryptography is secret writing. Bitcoin is the exact opposite of that. Bitcoin is basically a public ledger. So it's designed to be private, but it doesn't actually encrypt things. You can encrypt data and store it in the blockchain. But the difference here is Bitcoin itself is a set of digital signatures it is a chain of, of evidence, and um, it's fairly much everything that those other systems that aim for an um, anonymous sort of transfer is not. So, But what about it not being a currency? Currency is actually an, uh, basically a word that lawyers use to define something that is used by the state. So money doesn't mean currency, um, although currency means money. So to be currency... It needs to be something like legal tender, fiat, etc. So if you require that bills are paid 
in US dollars uh, because you're in the US or cable or, or pounds here in, in Britain or euros in France and Spain, etc., then that's currency. Right, so currency has to be official in some way. Correct, yep. yes. But you want Bitcoin to become widely used. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like it to be adopted by states so that it can claim to be a currency? Um, in time it will be. But what I see first will be the, the sort of release of tokenized fiat. So states, central banks, etc., will use the sort of capabilities of Bitcoin to actually then print their own money on top of it. Right, so they're using it as a sort of mechanism Correct. rather than the, the, the value store itself. Yes. Right. Um, Although it's not actually a value store either. That, that's um, something people get wrong. Everyone loves to run around going a store of value because gold used to be a store of value. Gold is an inflation hedge. By definition, a store of value is something that you contract in. So I can't use Bitcoin as a store of value unless I contract in Bitcoin. If I pay my rent in a fixed amount of Bitcoin, then Bitcoin is a store of value. If I have $1,000 a month that I need to pay, even if I pay that using Bitcoin, then Bitcoin's not a store of value. If my bill says I must pay $1,000 a month, then dollars happens to be a store of value. It can't change. It doesn't matter if the value compared to other currencies in the world goes up or down. That's irrelevant. Store of value means that those contracts you have to pay may be paid the same way. But if, I, if my landlord says I can pay in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. does that make the Bitcoin that I pay a store of value? If you pay a fixed amount of Bitcoin. Right. So it, it requires people to trust the sort of exchange rate in order to... Well, you don't even have the exchange rate. So it's actually used in that. Yes, you you have to... The the landlord would have to not be worried that they were losing out by charging in Bitcoin. Correct. Yeah. Do you see the problem of massive debt incurred by states with their currencies as something that will help push people towards using Bitcoin? Some states, yes. Ones like Greece in the past... But um, the claims of collapse in the US government, etc., they're overblown. So people who support Bitcoin shouldn't be looking, for, looking forward to sort of world economic disaster. So that No, unfortunately that's uh, the wrong type of people that have been attracted. Right, OK. That's not what Bitcoin helps with, um, nor any other cryptocurrency for that matter. Now, the other side of the whole Bitcoin ecosystem is the blockchain mm-hmm. and your development of the MetaNet. Mm. Now, blockchain was never mentioned in the original white paper. Has that, was that originally, was that part of your thinking or has that sort well, of Well, if you emerged? look at the original code in the comments, you have um, blockchain is used twice, um, although it was block space chain. Um, I get a that's, lot my, of, that's why my find didn't pick it up then. Correct. I get a lot of things um, that people don't like, like I capitalized C and, um, in Bitcoin and things like that, and I got a lot of Satoshi would never do that until people started looking and going, oh, actually, he did, and suddenly uh, just ignore me on that point. Um, and time chain was also used. 
and that one doesn't have a space. You've talked about the, um, the, the ad-based tragedy of the commons in the internet mm. today. I mean, tell me about the opportunity that you see for Bitcoin to replace the sort of ad-based, uh, well, possibly the tech giants altogether. Well, it changes everything in giving people control of their own lives. Uh, rather than having people like Twitter or Facebook owning everything you're doing, it now allows you to start creating your own space. There's a growing awareness of um, privacy and mm. the question of do you own your data. Mm. But on the other hand, I think a lot of people are prepared to sort of do the bargain. OK, we'll, we'll, we'll sell you that and we'll but take the free really, services. They don't really have an option. Well, they and could not just free. not use the services if they wanted. How would you do that these days? I mean, it's like saying don't use electricity. I mean, uh, when you're seeing everything being connected and people communicate this way, you have to use it for work, etc. How? But then how are you going to say to people, so you're not that happy with these services, how about just paying a little bit instead? Do you think that is going to work? Of course, because you're paying now. Um, a lot of people pay for Google so that they have uh, email that is stored or they pay extra for Microsoft or Dropbox. So people do that already, but the difference is they're still also selling their data. So this could be cheaper. For a start, um, if you're considering something like Google, right now they're selling ads and giving you a terrible, terrible sort of uh, set of ad-based responses. Um, and people are moving over to um, DuckDuckGo and others. But imagine that you pay a tenth of a cent every time you do a search, or even less. In, in time, maybe a thousandth of a cent. And what's that really going to matter to you? The model for advertisements is incredibly inefficient. I mean, uh, you have hundreds of um, ad impressions to get someone to click one or two, and that just doesn't work. On top of that, it leads to a whole lot of fraud and crime. People um, uh, posing as bots, etc., around the world to do click farms and... I mean, that then requires others, um, like Microsoft, have teams of people following bots on their browser just to try and find out uh, who might be trying to cheat them out of ad revenue. As well as your interest in the, the sort of technology behind blockchain, you have an interest in the law. You've mm -hmm. been studying the law and stuff. And Enchain um, Waywork is accumulating a, an impressive uh, collection of patents. Yes. Now, how does, what's the master plan behind that? Oh, we get to dictate how things evolve. Um, and reality is that people's property includes anything they create, their labour. And labour doesn't mean there's something digging in the ground. Labour is mostly by thought. Uh, if you think about it, who is the person who deserves the labour, the farmer or the ox? If we have someone leading a pair of oxen, pulling a plough, is it the farmer who actually led them and, and did everything? Or do the ox deserve to have rights outside of Peter uh, and a couple other wacky sort of extremists? I think most of us would actually agree that the farmer is the one who is rational, who actually controls the action, who dictates what happens. And when he spends those long hours leading those farm animals, that he through his thought, created something. And that's the same with intellectual property. 
So the reality is if we want people to keep creating things, to make works of literature, of art, of everything, then we have to actually reward them and incentivize them for their creation. And so what this is going to mean is that in some cases, or quite a lot of cases, you're going to have to go after people and say you're using something that we've developed and we've patented. And that will allow people, that will sort of encourage people to use Bitcoin SV Mm -hmm. as a a chain. Yes. Um, I mean, how do you you balance that perfectly understandable um, desire to sort of be rewarded for the work that you've done Mm -hmm. with the somewhat more idealistic intentions of of Bitcoin to sort of transform the world and you're sort of when you developed Bitcoin you were sort of giving a giving something to the world I would say or, or did you not see it like that at all? I don't see it like that at all. But there wasn't there wasn't a patent on there wasn't a patent on the original Bitcoin. Well there are a few reasons for that. One, you can't be pseudonymous and have a patent. Uh, so there's no way. It's not like copyright where you can actually have a pseudonymous copyright. But um, to patent something, the actual author needs to be known and visible, etc. So there is no way to pseudonymously patent. But you would have liked to. Uh, it would have been good if I could have, but it also had a, it would have cost a lot of money, etc. Um, the reality is you needed people to start taking it up and, and developing it. Um, a lot of early people were involved in, in making sure the code worked. Any software that is based on um, um, sort of complex cryptographic algorithms, um, digital signatures, hashing, um, things like that, needs to be open source. People need to be able to find where the errors and vulnerabilities are. Right, so you needed to sort of allow a mm. crowd to exactly. be involved. And there were a lot of problems in the early Bitcoin code. Right. Um, now, you're, you're busy doing uh, two PhDs at the moment. That's correct. How many have you got already? Um, well, I've got a, um, a doctorate in theology, which is um, a professional doctorate. Um, I've got a PhD in computer science slash economics. Um, and I'm doing a PhD in applied mathematics right now at CNAM in Paris. In French? Um, only partly. I can read French a lot better than I can speak. Uh, I used to um, spend a lot of time in Canada and um, in that part of the world, and um, uh, my French is terrible as far as Parisians say. I got told uh, when I tried to speak French uh, to a taxi driver, um, just speak English, you're murdering my language. But um, uh, I don't need to worry too much when it comes to actually reading and writing. I mean, uh, my accent may be horrible in Australian, but um, uh, French, when reading and writing, is fine. But what I don't understand is, I mean, anyone doing a PhD finds that quite a lot of work. To do two PhDs, and also, I believe, 30 minutes of Mandarin every morning, Mm. um, boxing once a week personal trainer every day I mean not every day um, oh, it was only sorry, three days a week not every day, two days a week okay That's but three. then you've got a job at Enchain I mean how does this all fit into 24 hours a day I uh, don't sleep a lot you don't need to sleep much 
No, um, which I don't think makes my wife happy because um, I get up early in the morning and wake her up all the time. But... but you don't have to do all this studying. Why do you do it? What do you mean I don't have to do it? I mean, you're just doing it purely for pleasure, right? No, I'm doing it to learn. It's... Right, but the pleasure of learning. Well, that too, but I mean, no, no one's forcing me to, but so what? I mean, do you want to sit at home and do nothing or do you want to have something in control and uh, take over your your own life and develop something of yourself i mean if you, you could anyone can sit there and watch uh, sort of tv and the latest i don't even know what the latest tv shows are to tell you the truth uh, other than um, like walking dead and a couple that i uh, sort of allow myself but for the majority of these things i have people sit there and they they waste their life and call it entertainment and and could be actually learning. Um, there's so much out there. I mean, at the moment I'm doing, uh, sort of listening to a series of lectures on um, old Winston Churchill there. This knowledge of everything is, is something that we should learn and it helps us grow as individuals. You mentioned you, you had a doctorate in theology. Yes. And I, I saw also that you were a trustee of a church. Uh, that's correct. It's actually the church bank that I was a trustee of. Oh, OK. Um, so I was, I was an elder, uh, which is uh, in Presbyterian sort of circles, I guess the equivalent of a minister or priest or whatever else, uh, pastor. Um, and um, I sort of helped out doing some of that stuff in the past as well, yes. Are you still an active church member? Or? I don't have time. Um, I still believe that I still um, I still have the same values, but um, the reality is uh, the amount of time to do what I want to do means sacrificing certain things. Because you went to a Catholic school. That's correct. Uh, but, but then you mentioned Presbyterian. Did you switch? I switched, yes. Yeah. I grew up Catholic, um, but I didn't actually agree with the system that they had in place. Uh, Capitalism, the whole change to the individual, etc., was something I could embrace more. Now, the other very intriguing thing that I read about was what your time in Venezuela and Colombia working to stop sex trafficking. Was that, and you mentioned being a pastor in relation to that, was, was that a sort of an altruistic episode in your life? Uh, people could call it altruistic, I wouldn't. What, what, what actually were you doing? Um, well, basically, uh, I've been an expert witness. I've worked with um, uh, federal police and whatever else. Um, some things were copyright cases. Others were things like um, stopping uh, sexual predators, including um, child grooming cases, uh, that sort of thing. Um, it's more about the world we want to live in. I mean, I, I don't think that it's about altruism. I think we all have a duty and we all have to pay the cost of being in a world that we want to be honest and open. And um, like it or not, that's not free. We can't sit there and expect government to do this for us. We have to be part. We all owe something. The social contract, so to speak, doesn't mean that we just pay tax and sit on our ass, or that we can pay someone else to actually go out there and support making um, society work, it means that we have to actually be active in doing that. 
so in what capacity were you in Venezuela? Were you employed or...? Um, I was doing contract work. So my role was as an expert witness. I would um, uh, analyse hard drives and other such things. Uh, Who, what kind of employer was it? Um, government. Right. So, um, US government at times and others. Uh, but um, uh, the reality was it was because you send over a whole lot of um, uh, sort of SEALs and, and Marines and whatever else and they have this habit of blowing things up. So making sure that you captured the right information without putting bullet holes in machines was always important. So I'm interested you, you talk about that we all have a responsibility in the mm. world because you also describe yourself as you know, fiercely anti-socialist. Yes. Whereas that sentiment sounded almost like a socialist idea, that we all are responsible for each other. Oh, definitely not. I mean, this is what people don't understand. Um, they try and have this anarcho-capitalist BS and, and say that we're all sort of out there um, competing in, in the jungle. That's wrong. That's, that's totally the wrong way as well. I mean, the fact that we're individuals doesn't mean that we're not also having to deal with other people. And um, this concept of being an online troll is just being a social misfit that um, is basically throwing bricks through windows for the sake of it. We owe a duty to other people because they have a duty to us and, and we are part of society. That's what we are. We're humans in society. But is it then that you don't believe the government should be responsible for helping people What is who the need... government? Define that. I mean, this is where people... They just say, the government. We are. Well, we okay, are. But... It, it, but altruism or help or whatever you want to call it can be administered either through the government or through no, non-government organisations. The government doesn't ever help. That's the problem. Well, money is allocated, isn't it? Yes, and then people become dependent. They become basically wards. They, they, they give up their own choice and freedom. They stop actually working themselves. I mean... I'm lucky in that I had a mother who, as a single mother, um, didn't take money from the state all that time. And why, we, why was that lucky? Because I grew up seeing other people who, well, had more money, but their parents took money and I saw what they became. I saw my mother working hard and I learnt to work hard. I saw how she actually pulled herself up. And um, the problem here is when you start allowing others to take responsibility for is your life, you become nothing. Is it your position then that there isn't anybody who is the recipient of some kind of official aid who really couldn't look after themselves if they had to? Oh, fairly much, uh, but not in the way that most people look at that. Um, there were as many more... Uh, sort of uh, beneficial societies in the past. There were lodges, clubs, etc. So all of that is something that we've destroyed. People don't now, because there is government doing all this, people don't think that charity is important. They don't think that um, uh, actually managing society is important. And mostly, people now think it's their right to get all of this. The social safety net has become a right, but it's not. 
When it's charity, you can be embarrassed about accepting it. You might need it, but it's embarrassing. And that's good. That means you want to get out of it. But when it's your right, when you're owed this from the state, then there's no incentive to actually let go and do something more. Now, you, you've talked about being a billionaire. Um, and I'm wondering whether you're a billionaire like Donald Trump or a billionaire like Warren Buffett, who lives in the same house that he lived in when he, before he was rich, mm. or, or Trump, who, in a way, goes the other way and sort mm. of looks possibly richer than he is. Um, I think I'm probably closer to the, the Buffett side of it. Um, I did go through a few months of uh, just blowing money for the sake of it uh, because I hadn't had it before, really, at this level. Um, and uh, people argue now that I've got a Lamborghini that sits out and gets rain and snow and things like this. Uh, but the reality is, and um, uh, my wife told me only a rich person would say this, money gets boring. I don't think Warren Buffett would ever be seen dead with a Lamborghini, actually. Uh, I, like, um, I like fast cars. So, uh, <laughs> right. Just going back to the idea of the, you know, the, the inequalities in society, um, I mean, Bill Gates was a very controversial figure, obviously, mm. at Microsoft. And then he did a complete flip and started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, that sort of thing is rather annoying. That, that's a product of tax law. Well, the, the fact that Bill Gates is giving his money away. He hasn't given it all away. He's no, given but... Some. But the reality is that now allows him to spend more than he would have otherwise. And it gives him more power and control. It's a way of relinquishing um, sort of tax and the burden there to the government. So you have $100 billion and you put it into a charitable foundation of which 0.01% actually goes towards charitable functions and then you have the empire that manages everything for you, which is about how these things usually work. So for every $10,000, one actually makes it to people which is way better than the uh, one-third going to the government that you would really have in real life. So you don't think that Bill and Melinda Gates are sincere in their altruistic work? No. Altruism is a lie. You, you, what, it doesn't no, exist. No, no, but, well, no. You, but you talked about wanting to, wanting to help things along for the world. Yes, capitalism. Create, build. It's not altruistic. It, it can only be done through self-interest. Exactly. No one does things because they want anything out of the world that way. They do it because they want people to notice them, to be seen, to have something. But no one. I mean, Bill, Bill Gates, in talking about his work with the foundation, talks about giving back to society. In of course, the... because that's what people want to hear. That sounds nice. You sit there in front of the, the media and you lie your little heart out about, look how wonderful I am, I'm giving back. Um, and you build reputation, the well, same way people like Carnegie in the past did this. You move from being a robber baron to being this great altruist. But I think what goes along with him saying that is saying, I didn't just do this because I'm so clever. 
I was able to do it because of the family I was born into, the society I was born into, the time I was born, the state that technology was in. None of these things for which I could claim credit. Which is the whole bullshit about it's all society, whatever else. Bull. But do you therefore claim in your capacity as a billionaire to have fully worked so hard that you have completely deserved that money uh, through sheer blood, sweat and hard work. It's not blood, sweat and hard work. You don't get paid because you've worked harder. You get paid because you work smarter and you deliver something that people want. Right. Whether that's porn, gambling, um, roads, it doesn't matter. So rather than sitting around and going, the world owes me a living, I work really hard... How about you look at what you can deliver? That's what it's all about. This is why you get money in society, why we're not equal. Because if everyone was equal, there's no way of measuring where things should be. This year you've, you've announced on Medium that you're being very open about uh, Satoshi and uh, in a way that you haven't been previously. Why are you taking that line now? What's changed? Unfortunately, I've got um, a whole lot of greedy con men who all want money. And if I have to go and do depositions and things like that in court, that makes my life a lot harder. I've also got a whole lot of people out there who are scum, who run around going fraud and whatever else, because they want something that is criminal. They want crime coin. They want anonymous drug markets. They want assassination markets. They want something that allows them to try and get away from all the regulations and laws. They want to bring down and burn society for the sake of it. Whatever their hatred is, I don't really care. The fact of the matter is Bitcoin doesn't allow it. Nothing that derives from Bitcoin allows that. And um, uh, as much as they want to try and stop me, um, it's not going to happen. So the only way to deal with that is just to absolutely come clean about everything, is that... Unfortunately, yes. Right. Where did, where did the idea, where did the actual name of Satoshi Nakamoto come from? Uh, so um, I'm a long-time reader of The Economist. That goes right back to the old Phoenix bit. Um, and the silly part of that is Satoshi is the Japanese name for ash. So the money rising from the ashes, the rebirth and all the rest was a... Uh, back in the 80s, a big thing in The Economist there, which was as I was getting into work um, sort of in university for the first time and everything that was there, that was something that interested me at the time. And um, why Satoshi? Because I thought it was a bit silly and uh, whatever else. Um, Nakamoto, uh, because of a Japanese philosopher. You had an interest in Japanese culture when you were really quite a small boy, I think, didn't you? Yes, that's correct. How did that come about? Um, well, there was a, um, uh, a person I grew up with who was actually Japanese at the time, and um, uh, the culture, the martial arts, it all interested me. So, I mean, I just want to read you one thing that I read, which is a kind of comment on the whole Satoshi 
thing. Uh, it says, Satoshi is an important historical cipher precisely because he's mythical, and rather than being forgotten, Satoshi can be considered as a neo-saintly archetype for the digital age, conjured as if from a William Gibson novel. Do you think... I that think what- that is sickening. This whole saintly whatever else, I mean, the myth that is being created around it by these idiots is... Is disgusting. But if this is a system that is not dependent on any one originator, wasn't there a value in that kind of... But that's not what it's about. This whole, it's decentralised bullshit, it's absolute crap. It's not about democratising finance. You can't actually do that with Bitcoin or Ethereum or any derivative system here. It's actually about a stable protocol that no one can change. The whole way that you decentralize, as everyone says, is you pull the developers from ever making a change. You do the exact opposite of what Silicon Valley and that bloody cancer of society allows, and you take away the power of developers. You let them build on top of the protocol, and you don't allow a single developer to ever have a say in what happens ever again because they are the cancer in Bitcoin. They are the cancer in society. But you are putting your... By clearing up that myth, you are giving yourself extra authority and influence. No, I'm not. The whole point is you can't change it. My authority comes from the things I've built on top of it and that's patented. My authority comes because I have right at the moment, hundreds, and by the time I finish, my aim is to have more patents than any human in human history has ever created. Um, Right now, the record is a Japanese guy who invented um, LED lights, and he has around 5,500. My um, current uh, sort of papers and everything like that will take me to around that quantity, and by the time I finish, I want to hit 10,000. Wow. Um, and uh, so let me, let me try and work out how many, how many a week or how many a month does that come to then? A lot, but I, keep, uh, I'm, I plan to work for at least the next 30 years. You've got this kind of, uh, well, business arrangements with, with Jimmy Wynn and with uh, Calvin Eyre. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does that whole... Uh, triumvirate work between the three of you? Uh, Very well. We actually have different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Marketing is not my strength. (laughs) Other people do that one. Well, I don't. Um, I'm I'm very good at creating, architecting, inventing, um, sitting as the guy in the matrix in the room on the swivel chair, um, sort of being the wizard behind the curtain. But, I mean, you're, you're not shy of coming in front of the curtain either. I was at first. It's taken me a while. Right. Um, I wasn't terribly happy to do this straight off, and I had to, that's where Jimmy's been very helpful. But do you, do you consider this a sort of unfortunate part of your job now, or is it, have you come to enjoy it more? A bit of both. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still getting there. Uh, I still find it very draining. Um, I'm probably more of an introvert than an extrovert, so it takes a lot of energy out of me to actually go in front of people and and talk. Well, thank you. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then the the agony will be over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's about quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Um, If 
computing power goes up by several orders of magnitude, is that going to have an effect on the way that um, a, well, I, I, I don't know, I hesitate now to call it a cryptographic system, but on the basic workings of no, confirmation in, uh, between, in, in Bitcoin nodes? No, not at all. Why not? Um, number one, there are different algorithms within um, uh, quantum technology uh, that doesn't really exist yet anyway. So number one, you don't break hashes. So the hashed functions in uh, Bitcoin are not going to be broken anytime soon. And even if we did have um, this myth of quantum computers, which I say is really a way of people like IBM staying out of bankruptcy because they suck so much money out of the government to throw at stupid boondoggle projects, um, then it's not going to actually deliver anything that they're promising. The reality is there'll be specialist um, systems in quantum computers, uh, if one ever exists, that do very, very limited um, individual calculations at billions of dollars worth of um, investment. Um, to create something that could attack Bitcoin in the mythical quantum computer world would require maybe 10,000 hectares worth of quantum computer space in a system that grows linearly, that doesn't follow Moore's law, and for the same investment would actually allow you to have a bigger control of the network anyway. I mean, it's a myth by people who don't understand economics, a myth by people who don't understand physics, um, a myth by people who don't understand computation, just a myth out there because this thing's going to change things and it's going to... It, it's FUD, it's snake oil. It's a way of selling things to scare people into um, uh, changing algorithms and to doing things differently. And none of it will ever affect Bitcoin anyway. If a quantum computer with a billion, and we're talking a billion with a B, um, qubits, logical qubits, not just physical qubits, and we've never created one logical qubit in human history, ever. We have, have never even gotten close to a single one. Not once. We get to this point where we get five or six and it collapses. Always. Always the same point. And no one looks at that and goes, maybe there's something wrong here. If we did have a billion, um, then we have a system that will still not attack Bitcoin. It won't solve hashes and it will take months and months to solve uh, elliptic curve problems to which... Um, you have minutes to attack Bitcoin. So what people don't realise is we would have to surface the whole Earth with these devices, with more actual rare earth minerals, etc., than exist here. We would have to go out and find a way of mining the centre of Jupiter. But no one looks at that. We love to say these things, saying, we're going to invent this new monster that's going to change everything. It's a great way for governments to scare people. It's a great way for people to sell new algorithms. It's a great way for many other things. And it's a perfect boondoggle snake oil project. And it's been there since the 80s. And nothing ever changes. I must ask you one other thing, if I may. What's your line on the um, outrageous amount of electricity used uh, by miners? 
You mean like the outrageous amounts of electricity used by Google and Google searches? Similar that's, to that, yes. No, oh, no, actually, that's way more. Thousands of times more. You mean the incredibly inefficient use of um, Visa and MasterCard electricity? Um, that's what people don't seem to understand. So this, this has just been blown out of proportion? Oh, no, it's people who want to attack the system make things up. In fact, it's more efficient than proof of stake. And proof of stake is just a security. It's you vote, except it's all about power. This is what it all comes down to. See, what people don't understand is Bitcoin, with a stable protocol, takes away power. If no one can change the protocol, not me, not God, there's no power in money. Money is all about power. And this is one of the things Bitcoin has done. It has removed that power. It will remove that power globally. Craig, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.